As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 261. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard Ryerson here. Thank you for tuning in to Dose of Leadership, episode 261. So happy that you're here. Great guest today, Dr. Kim Villeneuve is on the show. She is the founder, president, and CEO of Centerstone Executive Search Firm. She is often the one who's charged to handle the difficult and thorny assignments of a founder succession, including the CEO and board searches. And she's worked with startups, emergings, and mature businesses. We talk a lot about that, about what she looks for in the qualities in a great leader. We talk about culture of an organization. We talk about a new role that she's really kind of helping organizations find, and it's the new, the emerging, uh, the idea of a CDO, a chief digital officer. And that was intriguing. It was fun to talk to her about that. So uh, you're really going to enjoy this conversation. She is, again, a leadership junkie like all of us here that tune in a dose of leadership, all of us trying to find our way in this world, trying to find our way to become more significant in everything that we do. It's a search for significance, isn't it? It's a journey, this leadership journey, always trying to find ways to become better leaders. And I, like you've always heard me say, it's always adding value, intentionally adding value to everyone and everything. That is the key to leading a significant life, to be that impactful, influential leader that you are called to become. I truly believe that. And hopefully you're finding Dose of Leadership as a great free resource in your journey as you're going along. It's a never-ending journey. There's all kinds of resources out there. Hopefully this is just one that you're tapping into to help you become the leader that you were called to be. Again, if you're finding value in Dose of Leadership, I would appreciate it if you subscribe, rate, and review like I always ask you to do. And I'd appreciate it if you haven't done it to take the time to download it to your smart device and on uh, iTunes or Stitcher if you've got an Android device and leave that rating and review on iTunes. It helps so much in the visibility, for the visibility of the show. And if you're so inclined, if you want to support the show financially, you can do so easily at patreon.com slash dose of leadership. You can also go to my homepage, doseofleadership.com, and you can click on the left-hand banner there. It says support us on Patreon. There's also a menu item in the in the menu bar. But you can go there and you can support this show and uh, you can donate as little as much as you like and any support 
would be highly appreciated. Again, I thank you for all your support for those that are contributing to Dose of Leadership on Patreon. It does so much to help me uh, continue to make this show bigger and better each and every day. And again, I thank you for your, your support. Again, thanks for tuning in. All right. Go to richardryerson.com too if you're interested in my coaching, individual coaching, group coaching seminars. You can also have me speak at your organization. Find out more at richardryerson.com. I would, and you can check me out there. All right. Here's Dr. Kim Villeneuve without further ado on Dose of Leadership. Well, Kim, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. You know, when, um, the the opportunity came to to see if this would be a good fit for the show. I said absolutely. I've never had um, someone of your caliber from the exec on the, that's been so involved with uh, executive searches and trying to find C level type individuals for certain roles. So this is exciting for me. Again, uh, a welcome to the show. And and how did you get started in this? How did you end up being uh, um, passionate about finding leadership roles for organizations? Well, I started the practice in 1998, and uh, Thunderstone took off from there, and basically we started working with companies to really focus on their C-suite specifically, so we did that, and then also leadership consulting around, you know, once you have infused talent to your organization, how are you keeping them, and it really is through development, so it, we have two parts to our practice, and really one is the search side, and the other is the consulting side. And uh, then we opened offices in Seattle and L.A., New York, D.C., Charlotte, and uh, we're focused on the consumer retail segment, so retail, restaurant, hotel, wholesale. Uh, and our disciplines go across all functions. So we're as good at marketing searches as we are at CFO searches and also uh, IT, digital, finance, et cetera. But it was really through just this passion for leadership and the study of leadership yeah. and always wanting to be ahead of the curve on what is a contemporary style or styles of leadership and how do those drive businesses today that really is the underpinning of the practice. That's refreshing to hear. And, and that was one of my questions. Like you have to be kind of like leadership junkies to, to, to get in this business, right? I mean, you have to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did yeah. it, how did it start for you? I mean, when did you start? It's always interesting because if you look at uh, anybody's leadership journey, uh, for me, it seems like it always goes from a, a spot of, okay, this is what I expect leaders to be. And then as you get going on, you're like, wow, I was so off the mark early on. But when did it really start to, to resonate with you and how important leadership was or is? You know, it started really early in my career when I was with a um, billion-dollar retailer in Southern California, and I was in organization development at the time, which is management of the change process within an organization. So I was working on things like how do you increase customer service levels, you know, in a 14,000-person organization? How do you implement some kind of a system uh, strategy and overcome resistance to change around systems. And so that was really my role. And so I began then to recognize that um, I could actually make a big difference in an organization based on the work I did from an organization behavior perspective. But it occurred to me that I could actually do a lot more if I understood how to infuse talent into the organization as opposed to just inheriting the talent and then doing something with it. So that led me to recruiting. And I got involved in the recruiting side and recognized that really, you know, having the opportunity to work in executive recruiting allowed you to 
pretty much be in touch with, let's say, the top 2% of talent in any given functional area and to really be able to infuse them into an organization as a catalyst for change. And you could change out the entire senior team and everything that happened from there on out based on your work doing that. And so that that got me hooked. I loved that. And then the second thing that happened really is that I began working more and more with boards. And um, excuse me. And boards would actually bring us uh, on board to help them recognize what they needed to do to scale an organization, as an example. And it was working with boards, but I discovered that boards of directors meet basically for an average of around 22 days a year. And that sometimes isn't even in person. Sometimes that's virtually or by phone. And so when I began to get involved in board director meetings, uh, you know, under the guise of search, I began to be really incredibly stunned by the amount of decision-making that's made in very short windows of time. Right. And it came down to this thing called bounded rationality. And the theory of bounded rationality is that you can only know so much. You can't know everything. And so it's implicit that in that that your board is just absolutely critical to creating a synergy that gets you to the right decision-making. And so if your board dynamics aren't such that lead you to that place, then you're likely not going to be making the best decisions. And so I got involved really helping boards in that way, and that led me to get a doctorate uh, from George Washington in leadership studies and organizational learning. That's amazing. You know, that's an insight I hadn't really thought about, you know, and I guess I didn't realize – and I've never really put much thought into that. That's how little time that boards are together in a, in a year, mm-hmm. three weeks, mm-hmm. 21 days. And so many decisions are made in those three weeks. So it's imperative where well, your only options are either meet more or make sure that you've got the right decision makers in, in the mix. Yeah, yes, know. and you have the right dynamic too in terms of how they operate with one another. Oh, man, that's about making my head explode thinking about how difficult that must be because how do you even know i mean what are the gauges of success i mean how do you know that you got the right dynamics i mean what do you do because there's so well, many at the, end of, at, the, at the end of the day the shareholders will tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's so true and so it's listening to the shareholders but it's also i get i guess this leads to my question of like what is in your mind if you had to to look for an ideal client what are some of the top three things that you're looking for for someone to fill this this leadership role? So I, I think that the most important thing is to figure out um, who can bring the technical expertise, and that's basically the price of entrance, you know. And so then it's the person that can bring maturity in terms of the strategic value that they bring because you want to bring candidates to a company that can get out ahead of the curve and be prepared to lead the rest of the organization through really outstanding leadership and influencing skills. So it's really this combination of knowing what is contemporary in terms of meeting the objectives of the organization, and then it's really having the strategic capability mixed with this lovely and wonderful dynamic of leadership, you know, which has to do with many styles of leadership, you know, that make them successful. You know, a lot of times it seems like, especially in large organizations, we put this tremendous amount of dependency or fascination with a larger-than-life personality. Talk to me a little bit about how important or not, or you know, important charisma and personality are towards leadership styles and leadership success. 
it's a huge conversation because most people get really enthralled with someone that has the ability to elevate a conversation through their passion to be able to influence people based on how they speak and how they connect. But I actually have seen many examples of great leaders who, while they engage, they don't engage in a way that's necessarily charismatic. But because they are on track and people begin to believe that they have the credibility, they will follow that leader anywhere, regardless of the fact that they're dry or perhaps even boring. But as long as they're right on track and they have credibility and they can bring people along with them, then they're fantastic leaders. So it's actually a misnomer that leaders need to be charismatic. What they need to be is engaging. Yeah. I love that you said that. You know, I've been preaching that on this show for three years that, and I certainly, if I look at my own leadership journey and and coming from a space, talking about going in the Marine Corps, thinking it was about charisma and larger than life and, and, and being that John Wayne that walks into a room. Well, God didn't gift me with a lot of those charismatic qualities. You know, I only weighed 130 pounds back then. I wasn't an imposing square jawed <laughs> figure, but I met some, it was early on, and I met some Marine Corps officers that, you know, looked even kind of didn't fit the role. They were skinny. They were gawky looking. They were very quiet. But when they started talking about the mission and what they believed and what they did and the, and the stories of what happened and the people that they lost and, and you saw the engagement or the passion and the love that that they that emanated from them, they became very. Uh, you would follow this person to the gates of hell. And so that's that's when it kind of hit me that it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't all about being this character character of a leader. You know, in, in it's, the, really, it's, it's really true. And the other thing that we've learned in terms of the theory of leadership is that most people have a hybrid theory, or excuse me, a hybrid um, uh, style. And it's not just one kind of leadership. So right. Maybe charismatic in one way that you bolster that with, let's say, uh, you know, more of a transformational kind of leadership style. And what I've also learned that I think is so fascinating is that it does have, you know, the style that you use has a lot to do with gender. So we actually aren't socialized to allow women to be highly charismatic. That's actually not a leadership style, nor is it a leadership style that's very um, sort of fast forward in your face, moving people along, rallying. That's actually not a leadership style that uh, women uh, that re- re- uh, resonate for most people. So regardless of whether a woman wants to take on that role sort of as the charismatic leader, she likely is more um, capable if she pairs it with a transformational leadership style. Yeah. And transformational leadership is the process of rallying a team around a common goal and getting everyone to believe in that goal for the betterment of the organization. It's not for her betterment as a leader. And when, when a woman allows us to do that, then she clears the path for us to follow her. And that's actually so fascinating to me because it just is a good example of how charismatic leadership really isn't always the right way to lead. It actually is an underpinning in some ways, but other kinds of hybrids are really important. I love that. I think in, in I've seen that in examples. We've talked about that on the show. I've had other uh, women leaders and we've we've talked that. I love how you articulated that, though, that, that really resonated because I've seen that in my own examples of working with some great women leaders. And the great women leaders were the ones that you they, they tapped into authentically who they were. They weren't trying to be, and that goes with anyway, gender or not. If we try to be something that we're not, 
Um, it's, it's, it's rarely sustainable or successful, but if you tap into that authenticity and that's kind of what you're saying is like, Hey, look, be who you play to your strengths. It doesn't really matter if you're an introvert or extrovert at that point. The, the, the point is having that intensity of will towards the, the overall mission, the organization, you know, coupled with your humility and authenticity. That's a pretty powerful combination is what I'm hearing you say. It's true. And I think that when people see that a woman, we'll just use woman as an example here in terms of diversity of leadership, when a woman does that, she takes the focus off herself yeah. and she puts it onto the organization yes. and everyone rallies around the organization as opposed to her. But at the end of the day, they're actually responding really very much to her. Y- yeah. uh, it's just that she's very capable of moving that focus so it allows her more runway to lead. Yeah, I love that example. It's so true. So true. What? So at, at what point did you realize that, um, well, I guess, first of all, what was the dream for you when you were, um, say, a young leader coming up in, in the executive world as opposed to the dream now? For myself personally, it was really around being able to share knowledge. That was really important to me early on. It was a theme because I got involved in training and development early and then organization, organization development in terms of how do you change people's behavior? Yeah. You know, I was either going to go into marketing to do that or I was going to go into human behavior, which is, of course, where I ended up. But it was really around the process of being influence other, influencing others to be able to see something differently that would elevate their own thinking and that in turn would elevate the performance of an organization. That was really critical to me. And then it led me to creating a model to do that in search and then uh, recognizing that that model actually didn't exist out there. It wasn't something that the larger firms were doing because it had a basis of organization development. So it kind of had this different flair and focus, and I approach search much differently uh, because I approach it from an organization behavior perspective. Hmm. And so I recognized, you know, over 20-some years ago when I launched the practice that that was really uh, enticing to my clients. And within the first year, uh, I built a million dollars in sales by myself. Wow! Based on that model, that's amazing. It's interesting that you you know trying to. I think we all try to think how can we change behaviors, how can we influence culture and organization. Um, talk to me a little bit about the simplicity and the complexity of doing that. What what is the? I don't know. I hate even to saying this, but what is the secret sauce to to changing or moving the the cultural? Uh, behemoth in the direction you want to, which when I say that, that means you're changing behaviors within the organization. How do we do that? It is complex and it happens at two levels. One is it has to happen at the top, which is ensuring that the CEO and also the board of directors, frankly, um, really do understand the culture they're trying to shape. But it's also recognizing that you don't own the culture yeah. at the top. It's the only thing you don't own. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's not an asset. You don't own it. And so culture will happen by default. It happens all by itself. Culture is how people act, whether you like it or not. And so the best that you can do is recognize that you don't own it and, and your ability to essentially um, shape it by virtue of how you set the environment for motivation and how you respond to the organization in terms of um, allowing it to perform in a way that channels its energy properly. That's actually how you shape it. But it's definitely something that has to permeate the organization. You know, that by permeating it, 
it means that not only you have to figure out what is it that you're trying to shape in terms of how we want people to act here, like I want people to be ethical. I want them to do anything the customer asks that doesn't, you know, cross the line of integrity. I want them to, I want our culture to be one that um, supports everyone within the organization at all times in terms of you drop everything to solve a problem. You know, it's not a siloed organization. We all work across matrix and, and we're very supportive that way, whatever the culture is. And so <clears throat> essentially it's incumbent upon the CEO to make sure that that is heard and then that it is also um, something that is modeled. And then it's something reinforced. So then you begin to actually hire to it. So all of a sudden in your hiring standards, you see these words when you're interviewing a candidate around tell me more about how you've worked cross-functionally to promote teamwork. Give me an example of it. And so now all of a sudden we're hiring people that are actually going to, you know, where the culture will resonate for them. And then once we do that, we're going to begin managing their performance against that. So you're going to see this show up on their performance review. How well did you over the last year uh, promote teamwork across functional areas? Yeah. So it's like, oh, my gosh, there it is again. And then when it comes time for rewards, the bonusing program. So suddenly I get a bonus of $3,000 in my paycheck and a note from the CEO or my direct supervisor that says, um, I just wanted to thank you for promoting teamwork across all functions this last year. For example, when you included IT and marketing in a digital task force, that was phenomenal work. So all of a sudden, you actually are not only living your culture, but you are beginning to shape it by um, incorporating people into the organization that get it and then rewarding them for that and coaching them when they don't do it. And then over time, you will begin to see that that is your main culture. And you, and you need to monitor it to make sure people are engaged in it. I love that. And it's so many great nuggets and when in that beautiful answer that you provided there. And I think it goes back to, I, this is the first time I've heard this. I wrote this down, but I mean, you don't own the culture. I mean, I, I've had trouble kind of explain. I mean, that just resonated with me because when I've tried to explain people, you know, a culture isn't something that you do on the weekend. It's just something that you use. And then I love how you said, because it's so true. We don't own that piece. But the the second nugget that I got out of that that's really critical when it starts at that, believing that and knowing that, okay, that's your first step. The second thing is you really got to understand what you stand for and why, which is sounds so easy on the surface. But as you know and we know, it's it, it's a difficult, painful process to get an organization or even individuals to really know what they stand for sometimes, is it not? I found it to be anyway. It is. And also, you know, it's a reflection of leadership, right? So, yeah. It's the leader and what they're trying to accomplish and what they came there to do and their own understanding and clarity around that. If they're not clear about it and they're operating as a leader that's sort of, you know, just kind of managing as they go, yeah, make it, then yeah. the, organi- the organization will act like that. Yep. You know, it, it follows the leader in every way. And we know that. I mean, academically, we know that. We know that theoretically. But to see it in motion, you know, in practice, it's an amazing thing to watch because it looks dysfunctional. Yeah. And then finding that, yeah, it's, it's having that awareness, that self-awareness, you know, uh, and that alignment and that clarity of who you are and what you stand for. And then communicating it maniacally. I don't use that word lightly. I think you have, you cannot, in my opinion, once you find out what that is, you cannot over communicate that. I think that to me has been one of the biggest challenges in organizations when you're trying to affect culture is like you really got to know what you stand for and then you got to communicate it like a madman. I mean, every opportunity. 
It's really true. I'll give you a story that's a great story of it, and that is, um, you know, we've worked with Nordstrom um, a good deal, and one of the things that I worked with Gail Cottle when she was president of NPG, which is Nordstrom Product Group, and during that time, we were talking about culture because I wanted to be able to describe the culture of Nordstrom from her perspective, not just from what we know as shoppers. And I asked her, how do you, can you define the culture? And she said, well, I'll just tell you a story. She said, when I first started my first day at Nordstrom, I was on the shoe floor. That's kind of where I started. And the first customer I had, wouldn't you know it, was a woman that came in off the street. And, and she had bags with her. And she clearly was either homeless or just, you know, it, she was just really down under. I mean, it was just, you could tell, it was just difficult for her. And she brought uh, to me a pair, a, a pair of shoes. And, but there was no box. And they were pretty much new. And she said, I was pretty certain she had picked them up off the floor uh, as she approached me. And so she came to me and said, I bought these shoes, but they don't fit. I'd like to return them and get some different shoes. And Gail said to her, "Um, oh, my gosh, have a seat and let's make sure this gets right. And, uh, And the woman said, thank you. And she sat her down and she treated the woman like a queen. Hmm. And she found a pair of shoes that fit her perfectly. She boxed them, put them inside a bag, and she sent her on her way. <clears throat> and then she went into her boss, who was sitting in the storage room, you know, it was back, back room sort where the little offices are located, and said, I need to give you my resignation. And he said, what are you talking about? And she said, I, I know that I did, the, I, I did what I felt I needed to do. But I don't think that this is going to fly, that this is what I did. And he looked right at her and he said to her, oh, well, just make sure you mark the shoes out of stock. You did a great job. Oh, wow. And she said, that was it. That That was the story. And that story told everyone over time, years what the culture was. She never had to talk about what it was. She never had to teach people what it was. She never had to tell them to do something different. She just told him the story. Yeah. And that was it. I love that. Absolutely mm-hmm. love that. That's an, yeah. I mean, it speaks, that that speaks volumes to what we're trying to, I mean, it's, it's that, how do I even articulate it? It's that simple, but it's not simple. There's so much complexity and meat in that, of what we're trying to, does that make sense? I mean, it's a simple story, but totally. there's so, it really does, yeah. but it just says everything. It says everything. Behavior. And the other thing we know for sure too, I mean, theoretically I'll tell you, you know, there are only about 5% of the people that will come in and will do something that really is not legitimately right. But are you going to punish the, the 95% right. of the customers who really do have a legitimate claim and actually really do have a legitimate opportunity for better service, really, would you want to punish them in light of the other five that you're trying to control? And the answer for Nordstrom is no, we would never do that. Right. You know, they would have to speak for themselves, of course, but, but that's really the philosophy. The philosophy is don't worry about the 5%. It doesn't matter. Focus on the 95 that are doing it right. You're right. And and we, we get, we get so excited about that or the wrong, wrong way. It's like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. And this and that, you know, and for, you know, $80 pair of shoes or $180 pair of shoes, whatever they cost, you know, and you're like, okay, really that you got more out of letting that $180 go. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got that back. You can't even measure it, but it's immeasurable, but it's, it's just because of that, that story becomes part of the culture. And this is what we stand for. This is what we do. 
mm-hmm. you know, and the cynic or the the short sightedness or someone that's playing the short game is going to say, oh, but, you know, now the word's going to get out and then all these homeless people now are going to come in and, and know that they can get shoes off it, which is just a myth. It wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. Anecdotes, stories, and, and storytelling is actually one of the best ways to promote your culture. Absolutely. Um, because people remember stories. They remember, they live them. They, as you're listening, you're living it for a moment. And when you live something, you receive it and you believe it and you, re, or you react to it as opposed to just having someone tell you, this is what I need you to do. You won't remember that. Yeah. Except, you know, unless you're someone that, you know, is, you know, very disciplined about that. But chance start won't resonate emotionally for you. And uh, so that's why storytelling is so powerful when you change culture. Yeah. You know, this is a good, this is a good time to bring up because you wrote an, an excellent white paper that I read about um, building your digital muscle. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this and and but, but, couple this and stick with me on this, but the couple this with the, the power, that's the one thing as human beings, I think that can never be replaced no matter all the advances in technology and, and the social media and, and the strategy behind our digital space and our digital muscle, you still got to be able to tell that that's one thing that humans, that machines or any kind of digital strategy can't replace is the ability to tell those stories, right? And mm-hmm. have that human interaction and that connection. So with that in mind, and we know that and we believe that, we still have the reality that we have to deal with. If, to be a successful organization now, we've got to be technically and tactically proficient in the digital space, right? And so yeah. to me, it's like if you can figure out, yeah, it's a given. And I think a lot of times it's a given to be technically and tactically proficient in this, in this digital space. But I think sometimes we over rely on that. If we miss the element, what we we're just talking about, the storytelling, that if you can combine the two, then I think you're well on your way. Am I on mark? Does that make sense what I'm asking or saying? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I think the, the, the big thing about digital is it's a, it's a revolutionary thing and we got to all live through it. I mean, we all live through watching the internet, right? You know, right. open up and advance and, we saw the the huge bubble of dot com and and so now we're beginning to see how's that leading to data and what are we doing with respect to that data that's actually le- leading us to our digital revolution right so data right now is the operational backbone of any business and so you know as we watch consumers they're connected digitally by e-commerce with us by la- you know through their laptops their tablets their smartphones and that we also so we realize that we need to be able to communicate with them in that way, and that's way different. And then in addition to that, we need to learn about them digitally. Like we can use information uh, in market research and learn about trends and adapting content on a website, as an example, all because of the digital footprint someone has. And so it is leading, actually, to a huge revolution and a huge change in the culture of how an organization focuses on its delivery of business through different business channels. And digital is one of them, and the CDO is a huge person uh, responsible for that, the chief digital officer in an organization, which is really a very new and emerging title and one that people are just, you know, our clients are just wrapping their heads around. What is that exactly? How do I how do I set that up, and how do I make sure that it's uh functioning, excuse me, functioning title and role that will make a difference in the organization. Yeah. I love that title. And, and, uh, again, one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because I, I love the, um, 
kind of ideation or the birth of that kind of title, you know, um, we've had, we've kind of come from this, I don't even know when the CFO kind of idea came about, but it wasn't that long ago, was it? I mean, the CFO, if we look, was it 20, is that a 25, 30 year kind of phenomenon? I don't even know. Maybe I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. It seems like I saw something like you went from a CFO, then eventually you'd be, with uh, the IT, the birth of the CIO came around, right? Right. So I think that, you know, it clearly, uh, the CIO is clearly one that's evolved over time because first we, what we call them, chief uh, information, information officers, officer, yeah. then it was chief technical officers, we saw chief CTOs, and, and we've seen a kind of a number of iterations of that and the CFO. I mean, CFO has uh, evolved into a CAO role where they take on other administrative components, like they might take on IT as an example or HR as an example, and they become more of an administrator under that finance guys. But the thing that's interesting about the CEO is it is a chief officer level role, or it should be. Uh, in some organizations, they're not sure what level it is, but the most successful organizations using digital, you know, uh, uh, contemplating the, their digital footprint here is really are those that will make it an officer level. So it does sit right there with those other officers. What's so unusual about that role, though, is unlike other roles, it actually works cross-functionally, and you have to have as much cross-functional understanding of merchandising, marketing, IT, logistics, all of it. Yeah, and that's why I like that title because that was the first thing that resonated with me when I said, yeah, you know, you're right, because I think back to some of the organizations where – it, and I can see it. I can I can tangibly remember the gaps that we had. Thinking, well, do we give this to the C? You know, the, the IT guy. Is this a marketing function? Um, mm-hmm. What is it? And it's, it's everything. Yeah, it's like that. It's, it is. It's that person kind of sitting there bringing everybody together. You know, in, in wearing kind of multiple hats, but understanding how you can, and and that's why it's it's much more deeper than just say an IT role, making sure we've got the firewalls in the space and the website safe and all that, and our emails working. No, it's way deeper than that. And of course, it's not you just can't pawn it off to marketing, and the marketing is just creating a good looking website. It's like knowing how you can kind of bring all those together. So number one, you can still tell your story about your brand and keep everybody engaged. I think that's that to me, it's, it's almost like they're the drivers of engagement almost. Uh, that's how uh-huh. I see it. You know, it's like th- that role is so important. It has to be at that chief level because it is a driver of engagement, both for your customer and both for your employees. Yes. And it's interesting because some organizations are actually calling it that chief uh, customer officer or chief revenue officer. Uh, as opposed to chief digital officer. There there are many different sort of iterations out there. But it is, at the end of the day, the candidate or executive that goes all the way cross-functionally, strategically, and actually operates with influence only. They don't usually have a P&L, you know, in merchandising. They don't have P&L for, yeah. uh, you know, the marketing side. They don't have that. They have to operate just based on their ability to influence in terms of revenue, generation from all functions. But what they do have that makes them most successful is general management skills. So the candidates that we're placing that are more most successful are ones that actually are sitting in presidency positions today. They actually are like division presidents or they've come up to a GM experience where they, they know all functions as opposed to coming and popping up out of, let's say, CT, you know, the, the yeah, IT person right. or popping out of the uh-huh. marketing role. Yeah, they're not. That's a great point. They're not specialized in, you know, uh, 
maybe niche isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? They didn't come up, mm-hmm. you know, I was in accounting and finance and became the CFO. Then I became the CEO. You know, it's almost like you're right. It's like a GM role that kind of understands like a program management role where you're, again, you're that liaison between all the different functions. Um, yeah, I can see that. And then understanding the digital space, both from, you know, technically how it works, but also the power of, of it. And to me, I think it has to be someone too that understands that you just can't be relying on the technology. You have to have the storytelling and the no like, and trust factor out of all those elements, right? Well, why are we doing this? Because I'm trying to build whatever trust, engagement, revenue, all the above. They have to understand how all that comes together. The other thing too, is that if you hire ahead, which we're huge proponents of, you do get someone in the role that has the ability to actually um, act as a consultant to each of the functional areas, yeah, and it actually point. it ele- it elevates that senior executive to really raise the bar. You know, I mean, it raises the bar for the way the finance person looks at things because it's a whole different point of view, and the person that's in the CDO role is generally gifted with the ability to influence and to help teach and to help develop and to show a different worldview to each of these other areas that they might not ever have the exposure to. So you're actually elevating your entire senior team when you do this. I, God, I love that you said that. I wish more CEOs would understand or, or potential CEOs or people that are in that role. To me, I think that, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that is the primary function of all the functions that a CEO has to do. It gets it, it. It's such a great opportunity for CEOs and leaders in that position if they just and I use the word maniacal and I don't use it lightly. Like I said, but if they can continually paint the vision of how it's going to be, to me that is so underutilized in organizations. I see people that get in these CEO roles or these senior leadership roles, and they they put so much dependency on their technical and tactical proficiency of, of how they got there. And it's like when you're in that role, you've got to – that's almost – that is way secondary. And the primary thing has to be what you just said there. It just – to me, it's, it's, it's common sense. And I wish more people would just focus on that because I think as – when we look at leadership, that is one of the number – aside from integrity and honesty, that's the number one – that's a top thing we're looking for in our, in, in, uh, in our leaders is that forward uh-huh. – of, a forward vision of how it can be. Uh-huh. What do you that's think? It's really true. Yeah. Are you the is Centerstone? Were you got? Are you the um, really kind of the the landmark firm, or are you the first ones that are kind of promoting this idea of this chief digital officer? It'll be it's a practice area in most search firms now. It, it wasn't necessarily five years ago, but it's one that's evolving, and so search firms are recognizing that their clients have this need. So I suspect it's reflected in most. Uh, organizations. What's different about our firm is that we're a boutique firm, and the basis of our work, again, is on the organization development side, which is what we can help you make the placement. That's not an issue for us. But where are you placing them? <laughs> and how yeah. are you onboarding them? Yeah. And how are you going to allow the CDO to be not like the organ that gets rejected, <laughs> but rather like the organ that begins to create sort of this new pulp? within the organization and it's accepted in doing so. That's actually where our forte is that most other search firms don't have. They don't come at it from that perspective. So we're, you know, we're really highly focused, hyper-focused on bringing you the best talent into that role 
but we're equally focused on making sure they get integrated and that the organization is able to actually leverage this person. Is that, I know I just looked at the clock and I know we got to go, but as we wrap up here, um, it's almost like it's a tall order, but it, 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 could this almost replace the chief operating officer or is it still a separate from that, do you think? Usually the chief operating officer is really responsible for the distribution operating yeah, side of yeah. business, okay. you know, multi-unit and mm-hmm. all that. But it actually, I'm glad you brought it up because it is actually the successor to the CEO. So if you place correctly, your CEO actually is on the bench to move into the role of a CEO because mm. they have the general management acumen and the ability to work cross-functionally. And we're really screening these candidates for their strategic ability. And that's, again, what you want. You need that at the CEO level. So you're actually looking at a mini CEO sitting and waiting. And it's like a great that. succession strategy. I love it. I just love this conversation. I could talk to you for hours about this, and I know we got to go. You got <laughs> we we both have engagements that we got to get to. But my gosh, I'd love to have you back on the show. I, it's a blessing to meet you. I look forward to, to staying in touch with you. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about Centerstone and you? Well, you can certainly uh, visit our website, which is uh, CenterstoneExecutiveSearch.com. And um, certainly give us a call in any one of our offices. And it would just be a pleasure to be able to speak with folks. But really, Richard, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to get to visit with you today. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for the value, the value-packed conversation. Again, I will have you back because there's other areas I'd like to explore. I know that our listeners would uh, get some value out of But my gosh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.